Welcome to our special Dispatch podcast on Fridays. I'm your host, Sarah Isger, joined by Steve Hayes. This podcast is brought to you by thedispatch.com. Come try our free membership trial. It's thedispatch.com slash 30 days free, and you can join us for our special Dispatch Live right after the debates next week. And it'll be super fun. We'd love for you to join us. Try it out. No risk. And you can get all of our special newsletters that are for members only. Hop into the comments section, which is my favorite comments section on the internet, and be part of our little weird family. Uh, We'll hear a little later today from our sponsor, Gabby. But first, today we are joined by Carrie Severino. She is the president of the Judicial Crisis Network, co-author with Molly Hemingway of the best-selling book, Justice on Trial, The Kavanaugh Confirmation and the Future of the Court. Look, she's just an expert on Supreme Court confirmation process, and she's here with us today. I'm super pumped. Let's dive right in. Carrie, super pumped to have you here. You're one of my favorite people on the planet. Um, but I want to start with a forward-looking question. What do you say to Republicans, let's say, but, but voters in general who are saying, look, set aside this Supreme Court nomination. What about sort of a fundamental, like, I don't know, there's like a lock and an unfairness to this that Donald Trump got three Supreme Court nominations during his first term and Barack Obama and George W. Bush only got two for their entire time shouldn't we be looking at ways to fix this in the future or else we're going to keep having these escalations? Uh, Well, look, the escalations aren't because of the number of uh, seats that Donald Trump got to fill versus someone else. The escalations have been going on a long time, starting in 1980 with Robert Bork. This is this. So that that's not what's causing this. Sure. There are a lot of people who've, who's proposed different ideas, um, like having term limits and staggering the seats or different things like that, um, all of which are really interesting. Uh, they all have a little bit of a challenge of how do you phase them in so you don't you know, have one party or the other uh, unfairly advantaged by it. But the, other, the big challenge of those is they would all require a constitutional amendment. So gr- lots of interesting ideas. I would be happy to support one, but it's certainly not something that's going to happen anytime in the near future. What we see just historically is the Supreme Court vacancies don't come up evenly. Some people, you know, like President Carter got uh, zero Supreme Court vacancies, although he did get to fill hundreds and hundreds of other seats he created on the federal courts. Um, and, uh, you know, some people get more. This time we've, we've, we've seen that we got three in a, in a short period of time. Um, and that's, you know, this is that's just how, how those seats vacant open up at some point. Uh, I think what's worrying to me is the escalation. I, is, I absolutely agree a real concern. And I think particular when now we're talking about things like packing the court, which is something that's been a big, you know, move on the left, something that, you know, Biden was one of the few Democratic uh, nominee potentials to reject initially, but now is refusing to rule out. Um, and Harris, of course, is someone who I think has always been open to this. That really worries me. That's something that even people like Bernie Sanders and Ruth Bader Ginsburg herself are on record saying, bad idea. If you want to escalate the problem, that's how you do it. Uh, because that would, as, as Sanders has said, you know, you add two seats, they add two seats. Pretty pretty soon you have 87 justices. And and uh, Ginsburg pointed to FDR and how what a bad idea that was um, to try to do that, you know, uh, back in that era, roundly rejected even by his own uh, p- co-partisans in the Senate. So um, so I think, you know, we, we, backing away from that, actually, that kind of 
rhetoric is probably the best way to avoid further escalation. Steve? Why are we at this point? Why are we at a point where this stuff is so fraught and so partisan and so hostile? How did we get here? Again, I think if you look back, in, in, in fact, you could really trace it back before the Bork era. Um, you know, Molly, Molly Hemingway and I, when we were working on Justice on Trial, our book on Justice Kavanaugh, we were interviewing people who were who were in this business, you know, like Lena McConnell or Ed Meese are going way back, you know, and they, if you look for most of last century, um, and then going into this one, the Democrats had a decided advantage or not even, you don't even think it's fair to say the Democrats, the liberals had an advantage on the Supreme Court. And I say it's not fair to call it the Democrats because most of the, many of the conservative nominees were in fact some of the most liberal members of the court. People like Earl Warren, an, an, an Eisenhower appointee, Bill Brennan, you know, all of these, they, they, those were people that Republicans put on the court. And St- John Paul Stevens, a Ford appointee, one of the most liberal members of the court. Souter, um, a, a Bush appointee. You know, it just oh, time and time and time and again. And um, so we had a situation where the left actually had pretty much carte blanche to do, especially during like the, the Warren era, anything that they couldn't get done in the in the elected branches or they couldn't get done, you know, maybe they got half a loaf in the elected branches. They wanted to come back for that rest of that loaf. That's where they would go to the courts. And they had basically rubber stamp from the courts to do whatever they wanted. When you get to 1980s and the, and President Reagan is suddenly saying, actually, that's not what we're going to do. We're going to have judges who are faithful to the rule of law. And, and, and what we learned is that was partly his inspiration to do that was because he had seen as governor of California some of the stuff he was trying to do, like welfare reform. But all the things he he really felt like were top agenda items for him were getting blocked by the courts. So he's like, wait a minute, I realize if you don't have the courts, it doesn't matter what you can get past the the, the Senate, the, the House. It doesn't matter what you, legislation you have or your, your initiatives. You have to have the courts because they're the ones who are going to interpret them. And they're the ones uh, who who are going to say, you know, it, kind of basically come up with <laughs> with uh, the content sometimes because you had courts that were literally just adding words to statutes or rewriting statutes willy nilly. Um, once the left realized they were st- they, there was a move to, to push back on that, that's when you started seeing things like the Bork confirmation. So as soon as they had an opportunity to start blocking someone, they went for it and they went all out. And that was something that really took the Reagan White House by surprise. They didn't see it coming. And that's part of the reason it was a, it, the nomination didn't happen. It continued through, you know, the, uh, the, the Bush era when you had the, the Thomas confirmations and they just, they, when, when there was a chance in that case, not only of losing a swing seat, which was what happened in Bork, you know, we, we learned that if you, it's when you have a, a major shift potentially on the line, that's when things get crazy. It doesn't have to do with the nominees so much. It doesn't, although obviously there's a lot to be said for maybe a different nominee would have been more friendly or whatever in Bork's case, but it, a lot of it had to do with the, the stakes of the seat and the fact that the Democrats had the votes in the Senate to do what they wanted to do. Um, in the Thomas seat, it was Thurgood Marshall to Justice Thomas. Wow, they were losing a major icon on their side and getting someone who now knows the most conservative member of the Supreme Court, not a trade they wanted to, to make. And so all hell broke loose. They pulled out all the stops. They went crazy. And again, you look at see that in, in, in the modern era, Gorsuch, which was a serious fight. People sometimes forget what a big fight that was uh, for to get him confirmed. But, you know, replacing Scalia with Gorsuch is, is not a shift on the court. Replacing Kennedy with Kavanaugh was a shift on the court. And that's why it went all sorts of crazy. And then guess what? 
replacing Justice Ginsburg on the court with with any of these women that we're looking at, um, all of whom would be would have a very different. They, they, I think they fit right in her um, in in her trailblazing mode in terms of impressive women, mothers, judges, scholars, just real pathbreakers. But they're not coming from the same judicial perspectives. So you're going to see a lot of uh, fighting going on in that front. Do you think that the court has become too important? And if so, what are things that can be done to get the court out of the culture wars and the voting wars and the electoral politics? Yeah. And I think, I think that's the other half really to the, it's the, um, the left being so blazing mad about losing that opportunity to, to, you know, that, that kind of democracy by other means that they were using on the court. Cause it's not supposed to be the democratic branch. Um, but I think you're right. The other aspect to it that we've seen really since the New Deal era is part of the problem is the government itself is so much bigger, the federal government. It used to be that a lot of these issues that today the Supreme Court decides were decided in the states. So the stakes aren't that high. You get 50 different solutions. They much more closely approximate where the American people are. You get a different solution in Texas and in California and in Georgia and in, and in Florida and in, in New York. They're all going to look a little different, right? That takes that's that that takes a lot of the high stakes issues out as the as the federal government is smaller. And then the Supreme Court itself, I think, has caused some of this by constitutionalizing issues that frankly are not in the Constitution. Abortion is the one that people most most, you know, often get into. But there's other areas where they'll make stuff into a, a constitutional question that's frankly not a constitutional, a U.S. constitutional question. It's kind of this confusion of the idea of well, if it's constitutional, it must be good. And if it's if it's not constitutional, it must be bad. And if it's and likewise, if it's good, it must be required by the Constitution. If it's bad, it must be forbidden by the Constitution. That's just not how it works. That's not the the Constitution's job is to be our ultimate moral signpost. We've got that's why we've we've got all other things for that. We've got philosophy, we've got religion, we've got, and that's not what the Constitution's job is supposed to be. But people confuse that. They read their own, you know desire, some of which might be really good, into the Constitution, it makes it a constitutional question rather than leaving it with the Democratic branches. And I would say even that, that's even a, a pretty positive view of the nature of these debates, because that assumes that some on the left still care about the Constitution. So they care enough to frame their arguments as constitutional arguments, whereas you have others on the left who, who I would argue, basically shrug off the Constitution and diminish its importance at, at every turn. Oh, yeah. You've got people who are, unfortunately, I think, seem to feel even more emboldened now to kind of say, ah, this is an old 200-year document. Who cares? Right. And that's really a, a major concern, especially when you're thinking these are some of the people who are maybe advising a future president on who to put on the court. Uh, because there are some people, and, you know, for example, you look at this uh, list of extremists that that demand justice put out. I mean, this is one of the groups on the left kind of trying to get Joe Biden to put out a list of judges. Um, and they, the people that they're proposing are most of them uh, activists. They're not even judges. It's so it's not, there, there's not even a veneer of let's put people who are interested in constitutional questions. No, no, this is people who have spent their lives in the special interest world trying to advance one liberal cause or another. And this is just, you know, another venue in which to do that. And that that's a really frightening prospect to me. Looking ahead to Saturday, we're going to get the announcement of a nominee. And we're going to have uh, hearings potentially starting the 12th, according to some reports. Mm -hmm. What are you looking for to judge a successful hearing? And what are we to make of Josh Hawley, Senator Hawley from Missouri's 
pledged that he will vote against a nominee who will not say on the record that uh, she, in this case, will support overturning Roe v. Wade. So first of all, for the hearing part of it, um, you know, gosh, everyone, I think at this point realizes hearings are mostly kabuki theater. And probably I, I would I would say good riddance if we decided not to do them at all. I don't think we're going to do that anytime soon. Obviously, in, in many parts of American history, most of American history, there haven't been hearings at this point. And it partly even because sort of the legacy of Justice Ginsburg, she was the first one to refuse to answer questions about her judicial perspective on things, but she's kind of the most famous. She There were at least 60 different questions she didn't answer about what she believed, uh, how she would rule in certain cases. And she cited judicial ethics standards um, and said, you know, I'm, I, I can't talk about how these cases are going to go. So all of the things people care about the most, including Josh Hawley, maybe, <laughs> I would love to know what she how she would vote in this case. Sure. But you know what? They're not going to answer it. And they, they, they actually... There's, there's a, there, it is pretty clear because when you look at people who are already sitting judges, you aren't, they're not taking someone off the street who's not bound by these rules yet. This is someone who's already a sitting judge bound by the federal ethics rules. And they can't, uh, as she said, no hints, no forecasts, no predictions. I can't, I can't tell you how I'm going to vote specifically in this case. Um, you know, and, and so is the, uh, there are going to be hearings. They're probably not going to shed there will be more heat than light like normal. I think on a positive note, just for the sanity of everyone involved, Given a COVID world, they're not going to likely have um, anyone who is a, a outside group people a, able to come. There's going to be probably, I'm, I'm assuming there's going to be press. I'm not sure. I'm assuming there's going to be like Senate, you know, staffers and whatnot and senators all sitting six feet apart, but they're not going to have public seats. And you know what? Thank goodness. Because I don't, I don't think we need another code pink, pink like rally in the hearing room where people are getting dragged out every five seconds. That wasn't really helpful for for getting through the process. It'll be much more efficient this time as a result. Hoping I'm hoping the senators, it, you know, last time the Democratic senators decided they were going to be the protesters too. They interrupted Senator Grassley's introduction so often that his 10-minute introductory statement took literally an hour. Um, so, you know, I hope we don't see that this time. I don't think it played really well for those watching at home on C-SPAN, so I'm hoping they realize that wasn't a good move. Um, so we're, we're going to have hearings. We're going we're gonna to learn some aspects. I think it'll be a, a good opportunity to get to the, for the American people to get to know one of these women as well. We know that Justice or that Judge, jumping ahead of myself, Judge Amy Coney Barrett last time uh, had a really uh, stellar um, exchange with Senator Feinstein. I think that was st more stellar for her than for Feinstein because Feinstein's, you know, grilling her on her Catholic faith. And are you an Orthodox Catholic? And do you just, I think the dogma lives loudly within you. And that's a, a, a cause for concern. And that was walking right up to the unconstitutional religious test for office line. I think if we see those kind of things, that'll be another opportunity to see her grace under pressure. That was where her, she first rose to national prominence because people saw her and they're like, wow, She's not backing down. She's not She's not trying to hide from what she believes, but she also had a very great, a careful, thought-out answer of why that's not at all relevant to her judicial function. And let's talk about the, the judicial stuff. Um, and then just quick, finally, to go to the, the, the test, I talked a little bit about how judges, and I think whether it's Lagoa or Barrett, they're not going to tell you whether they're going to vote in cases because they're both federal judges and can't do that. Um, but I think aside from the impracticability of the test, and some people have said, well, that's not even a practical test, because if you get have to get everyone on the record, you're going to lose all these moderate uh, Republican votes, and you, know, you can't count to 50. Um, I think the bigger issue is that's not really a judge's job. It's to guarantee to you how he or she is going to vote in a case. That that goes against the idea of a judge being a um, a neutral arbiter of the law and not prejudging cases. Um, I'll also point out. So that will you try mm -hmm. to convince 
uh, will you try to convince Senator Hawley to drop his test? I have, I, I, I've written ex- kind of talking about this test in The Federalist and I think other people have have questioned whether it's a it's a it's a good test. Uh, the other people just on practical measures, his test and the way he is, he, he's wording it a little differently nowadays. Um, but the way he words it, I think it literally includes Justice Ginsburg. I mean, like it's it is vague enough. She has she expressed concern about Roe versus Wade so much so that some some abor- pro abortion groups were actually skeptical about her when she went up for the Supreme Court because she had said she thought it was um, wrongly decided insofar as she doesn't actually agree with the legal analysis in that decision. I think she would probably get there through the Equal Protection Clause or through some other, you know, constitutional magic, but um, but not, she didn't think it was decided correctly in that decision. And she thought it was decided at a bad time because like we were talking before, she thought this took something out of the public discourse in a way that was really harmful to the American uh public. And so she could, she could have, she could pass that test. So how good is your test? Senator I don't know. <laughs> well, it's good if your objective is to get headlines and attention. And I think that that has happened. Um, you mentioned Amy Coney Barrett interested in, in going there. Obviously the conventional wisdom is that she is likely to be the, the nominee. I would be very interested to know if you think that that conventional wisdom is right. If you have any inside news, we'd be happy to, to break it here. And, and beyond that, uh, We've seen uh, early uh, sort of follow-on attacks on her faith um, in the news media, amplified by Democrats, sometimes the other way around. If it's her, do you expect that that will be the focus of this battle? Well, so far, that, first of all, I, I'm hearing the same uh, received wisdom as you have. So I think that she does seem de- like definite front runner at this point, just a day away from the, um, announcement. Um, and so far, I think that's what we have seen from the left. Obviously it's what we saw at her, at her lower court proceedings. There's a lot of reasons to assume they're not going to go down the Kavanaugh route of uh, doing sexual assault allegations, right? Because it's a woman. Um, frankly, also because with their pre- vice presidential candidate having similar allegations against him, it might, might, you know, be a little bit awkward to try to make that argument. Um, you know, th- th- that doesn't mean I would really put anything past them because some of the language you're hearing from people on the left is really shocking. And frankly, I think threatening where they're saying we have to remember we need to be radical- radicalized and nothing's off the table. And these are from people who are literally setting things on fire and, you know, and, and, and causing actual violence. So I, 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 I can, I'm concerned about what, what, what other directions it can go. Right now, it does look like it's the anti-Catholic route. It's also fits kind of with a theme we've seen because it's not just Barrett that's gotten attacked for her Catholic faith. Uh, Senator Harris herself has attacked several nominees because of their membership in the Knights of Columbus, basically treating this, this you know, nationwide charitable organization as if it were a hate group, uh, simply because they hold to the Catholic faith. Again, no religious test for office, folks. It's right there in the, in the, in our founding document. You can't do that. Um, and it's, and it's disturbing to see that. I also think if they do that, it's gonna, it's not gonna look good. I, it'll just like, I don't think it looked good for Feinstein or for, or for Harris when they were going down that road. I think that's not what the American people want to see. And it doesn't fit with Justice Ginsburg's own legacy. She talked very eloquently about how her Jewish faith inspired her in wanting to go into the law and in a search for justice. And that's, that's exactly what America stands for. We got people on, on both sides of the aisle who feel that their faiths and all different, you know, but from all different faiths who, who find that inspiration in that for their, their lives, for their public service. And that's something we should be embracing, not attacking. Let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsor, Gabby. 
When you've had the same car insurance or homeowner's insurance for years, you kind of get trapped into paying your premiums and not thinking about it. That makes it really easy to overpay and not even realize it. Stop overpaying for car and homeowner's insurance. See about getting a lower rate for the exact same coverage you already have thanks to Gabby. Gabby takes the pain out of shopping for insurance by giving you apples to apples comparisons of your current coverage with 40 of the top insurance providers like Progressive, Nationwide, and Travelers. Just link your current insurance account and in just minutes, you'll be able to see quotes for the exact same coverage that you already have. Gabby customers save an average of $825 per year. If they can't find you savings, they'll let you know so you can relax knowing you have the best rate out there. And they'll never sell your info, so no annoying spam or robocalls. It's totally free to check your rate and there's no obligation. Take a few minutes and stop overpaying on your car and homeowner's insurance the second this pod is over. Go to gabby.com slash dispatch. That's G-A-B-I dot com slash dispatch. Gabby.com slash dispatch. A lot uh, I have seen on the left has been about the future of healthcare and the future of abortion rights. Assume that uh, it's Amy Coney Barrett or uh, Judge Lagoa, Barbara Lagoa. How is the court going to look after November you know, first, let's say, when they're confirmed, one of them, what changes? Uh, well, you know, obviously, on, on look, the, the, it's funny because the questions about healthcare are obviously not really about healthcare. They're they're about either statutory interpretation or the the commerce clause. And frankly, there's already five votes on the court without replacing Justice Ginsburg to say the commerce clause does not justify an individual mandated if it's, if it is not a tax. So. If there's an, either there's not, you know, that that is something that I'm not sure this will even necessarily affect. But I can tell it definitely pulls well for them because I was amazed that even I was on, you know, a TV right after uh, an ABC right after Nancy Pelosi Sunday morning. And I thought even she was going to go straight for Roe versus Wade. She didn't. The whole she just said this whole thing's about COVID and Obamacare. And I was like, the Supreme Court's about COVID. OK, uh, that tells me where your message testing is, but it doesn't doesn't really compute for me. But um, so clearly they think this is going to be a key a, a key issue. I'm not sure she's even the the fifth vote on that. So I, I'm not sure that that actually adds up in terms of the vote uh, in terms of abortion. Um, you know, I think that's actually also kind of kind of a question It really, you know, we'll we'll see. But I, I do predict that either of these women would clearly have a different perspective on um, on that issue and, and on how you interpret constitutional rights than Justice Ginsburg. We don't have either of them on the record uh, saying, you know, I don't think there's a constitutional right to abortion anywhere. So we don't, you know, we don't, we don't know in that sense. But um, we, but we do say, they know that these are women who have histories um, in, in Lagoa's case, going back to 2006 in the bench and Amy Cody Barrett's for the last few years. And then with her scholarship as well, of saying that the Constitution is means what it's is written and the original understanding thereof, and it's hard to figure out, you know, you know how to how to get to some of the uh, conclusions that Justice Ginsburg had if if that's your approach to the Constitution. Well, it's easy to imagine that Nancy Pelosi wants to talk about health care and COVID because those are the things on the minds of Democratic voters. Um, the, the the one way in which this is, I think, a uh, certainly politically advantageous for for President Trump and Republicans is that it. At the very least, it virtually guarantees that this will be one of the two or three big topics of discussion through the election. And if the assumption was, and I think it was a correct assumption, that before this, it would likely be COVID, 
um, and the economic fallout from from COVID. And I think I would say President Trump's mishandling of this. It's a it's a gift to President Trump to be able to change the subject. That's one of the reasons Nancy Pelosi would like to keep talking about COVID and healthcare. But but pulling back the camera a little bit more broadly. You've been involved in, in these things for a long time. You know sort of the politics of judicial nominations as well as probably anybody. Uh, Sarah's made uh, an argument for a while, I think a convincing one, that generally speaking, um, these kind of fights motivate Republican voters, conservative voters more than they do Democrats. Is that still true in this case, do you think? Well, you know, we, we haven't had, obviously every vacancy looks slightly different. The, the, the layout is slightly different. And a lot of people are saying because it's Ginsburg, people on the left are going to be more activated than they normally would. That may be. I just think that nonetheless, we do know historically it has been conservatives who have been incredibly engaged by the Supreme Court. And I, I think it kind of goes back to what we were discussing earlier, where it's conservatives who have mostly been on the on the receiving end of judicial activism. The liberals have, have you know, kind of taken it for granted as a, as a tool in their toolbox. Conservatives have, had, in time again, had so many courts ruling and and misruling in ways that that undermined uh, issues they really cared about. And so I think that's why it's it's such an engaging issue for conservatives. And I think it's something that, you know, everyone always knows there's going to be a Supreme Court vacancy. So, so to some extent, you know, people, people, anyone who's been paying attention knows that it was likely that there was going to be another Supreme Court vacancy in the relatively near future, uh, whether it was Ginsburg or Breyer or someone else you know it's going to be someone, and I think a lot of people assumed it was going to be Ginsburg, right? So this was already in everyone's back of their mind. Now it's in the front of their mind. And I think that in 2016, we saw that that did have a huge effect um, and one that, that where it affected people breaking decidedly for Trump. It was one-fifth of voters that said it was their number one issue. But those in that one-fifth that said it was number one issue broke decidedly, very lopsidedly for Trump. So um, I think if, if history is any guide, we're going to see that, that effect again. But, you know, We'll, we'll, we'll know that until November or whenever we actually find out the results of the election. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if, if anyone trusts exit polls this year. But. Whenever the Supreme Court decides, right, according to. Right. And, and, <laughs> to some, and whether there's some... eight justices or nine justices to decide that may decide, may determine whether we get locked in a deadlock for, um, you know, for the next four years while we, while we debate this. Did Republican senators make a mistake with the Garland nomination by saying that it was because it wasn't an election year, you know, did Lindsey Graham's discussion even after uh, Justice Kavanaugh's confirmation that he would not confirm uh, another justice in a presidential election year, is that costing Republicans in terms of how voters see the hypocrisy issue? Or is it a, we can, so we will? Um, so it, the, the, I think the question there boils down to historic precedent. And there is very clear historical precedent that is, I don't, it's not because, uh, I don't, I don't think it's wrong to discuss the fact that it's an election year because that's what makes that, that is the key factor in the historical precedent we're looking here. But there's two key factors. And the key, one question is, uh, we're looking at elections in, uh, vacancies that arise during an election year, right? And the other factor, there's 29 of those historically. And in all of the cases that that's happened, a president has made a nomination. So, in, in both 2016 and 2020, squarely in historical precedent, Obama made a nomination, Trump made a nomination. The question that helps you determine which of these get confirmed is who controlled the Senate when that happened. And that also shouldn't really be a surprise. But that's not what Lindsey Graham said. I, you know what? I, 
Lindsey Graham has 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 shifted his positions a couple times on judges. I, I don't want to be accountable for what Lindsey Graham has said on these <laughs> a things. Com- a couple um, times is generous. Yeah. So I'm not. I get you, but but I will tell you what I think is. It, I I'm not saying Lindsey Graham's position is a principled one. I I'll, I'll tell you what I think the principled position is, and I think Leader McConnell actually has held a principled position, um, and that is that if if you look at this at the history, the precedent is if the White House and the Senate are controlled by different parties, then that nominee is not confirmed. And if the White House and the Senate are controlled by the same party, he is confirmed. That's no surprise. The Senate says it takes these two political actors to do it. Effectively, it's like when the American people give the two different parties these things, you kind of have a tie. And then it's no surprise that the results of the election are effectively the American people breaking that tie. Here in 2018, the American people actually gave the Senate a, a wider GOP majority. That's not tapping the brakes like you had in 2014, where they took the majority away from the president. That's saying full steam ahead. And so you're, they're getting what that they said. That all makes perfect sense. But then how can Republicans argue against, if Democrats were to take the Senate and the presidency, argue against court packing? Because it's the same sort of, you know, that's what the Constitution says. If the president and uh, the, the Congress are controlled by the same party, they can add justices to the Supreme Court. They can get rid of the filibuster or anything else. Um, it, it goes back to that, can, so we will versus we can, so should we? Uh, right. And I, I think that the question is the American people want that to be politicized in that way. So yeah, they, they, there's no question that Supreme Court can have any number of justices that you want to establish by law. We do have a more than 100 year precedent of having nine justices. And I think most people, again, including Bernie Sanders, including Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and probably including FDR by the end of his life when he realized, you know, that didn't work out very well when he tried it, uh, realized that Messing with those numbers actually can cause problems with uh, these norms. There is a norm for not confirming nominees in an election year if you if you are opposed if you're a party opposed to the president, and there is a norm for confirming them in the election year. There is not a modern norm for let's switch the number of seats so we can have a, a majority on the court. And I'll point out too. It's really kind of frustrating hearing some of these things from people like Joe Biden or people. There were there there were scholars. There were legal law professors, and I would almost put squalors and quote marks saying this, saying basically there's a constitutional obligation to have a vote on, on, a, on a judge in election year. So the argument that McConnell said, which is basically, if you, if you want to do the crudest version, if we can, we, we, we will, their argument is no, the constitution says you must have a vote. So if they really thought it was constitutionally mandated in 2016, query what has changed about the Constitution in 2020. That's the fastest constitutional evolution, even for a living constitutionalist, I have seen. <laughs> and I, I, I recall Liz Warren, my own law professor, I don't know if you had Professor Warren, t- saying that that was, that was constitutionally required. And I thought, Professor Warren, like, when did you forget all law on earth? Like, of course it's not constitutionally required to have a vote in a particular time. We know people have, have many judges have not received votes in American history. And Many of them have, and there's no constitutional requirement here. So I would say the, the, the Democrat standard seems to be if it's a Democrat nominee, they should have a vote and you got to have a vote. And if it's a Republican nominee, they shouldn't have a vote. That to me is a really uh, hypocritical standard. Last question to you, Steve. 
One of the most interesting things to come out of the Kavanaugh hearings for me, just on a political or on a, on a political messaging perspective, has been the, the divergent views on how Kamala Harris conducted herself. If you talk to my friends on the left, they think sh- this was a star turn for her. They think she she grilled him very effectively. She suggested she had information, and she really sort of put the screws to him. Talk to anybody on the center right, and they think she whiffed. She didn't end up with the goods. She didn't. She didn't. She. It was a lot of bluster without uh, producing much. What what do you see her doing in this in these coming hearings, um, given the the proximity to the election, given the fact that she's the vice presidential nominee on the Democratic side, and given what she went through during the Kavanaugh hearings? Oh yeah, well, I mean, if you thought she was auditioning for president during the Kavanaugh confirmation, which she clearly was, she ran she and she must have thought she did great because she ran literally thousands of different ads, like thirty six hundred different Facebook ads, based on her her stuff there, despite the fact that. You know, I obviously would agree with those those in the center right said she was doing this Perry Mason routine that really fell flat. And you even had some kind of liberal media saying eh, it kind of turned out to be a nothing burger. Um, and she was, you know, misstating some of his statements about trying to make it seem like he was arguing that abortion or that that, that contraception all causes abortion or things like that. When he was quoting a, a, a plaintiff's position in a case, he was re- so things like that. Totally, you know, not not legit. Um, arguments. Some of this made for TV moments where he, she stomped out of a, uh, of a hearing and said she was going to have, she just couldn't say anything. She was a mom and she and Senator Booker and some others like walked out in, in silence and then went to a press conference and talked about how great they were. So, it, you know, I, from my perspective, I think that falls flat. You know, maybe some people are, are engaged by it. I think the real question is, clearly those on the far left are going to be, what about the moderate Democratic voters? Do they really think that's good? But again, if she if she was auditioning for president then, she thinks she's got it in the bag now. I think she thinks she's president-elect effectively if she wins the, uh, if, if, if Biden wins, I think she's just kind of waiting in the wings. Um, so she's certainly going to view this as a as another political opportunity. What is that going to look like? It's hard to imagine. Again, she's already gone down the anti-Catholic route, so I think she certainly might go down that uh, that route again. I don't think that's very consistent for the party of JFK and for Ginsburg's own party uh, in, in to, to ha- carry on those anti-religious um, tests. But you know, that's that's her call. Um, I think it'll be it'll be interesting because it it could be almost you know this is the 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 vice presidential debate you didn't know you needed, but it's effectively between Amy Coney Barrett and uh, uh, Senator Kamala Harris. So I I, I guess we'll. We're going to find out what tune in with with popcorn. But I think she's going to certainly be trying to do some of those same, uh, you know, whether it's a perjury trap or or, or uh, the made for TV moment uh, that she's that that the hearings are going to provide her as a member of the Judiciary Committee. It will at least require her to get out of the basement with Biden. So <laughs> the Severino family is into escape rooms. Mm-hmm. How does one do an escape room? During COVID, unfortunately, thus far, one doesn't. Although there's some online ones that we're trying to maybe get a group together uh, to do. But my 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 husband's cousins just sent this awesome game where it's like an escape room in a box. They're the ones who introduced us to escape rooms, and we're like, this is the best thing ever. We've literally done dozens of these, so this is going to be our first time. Not our first time doing an escape room in our home because actually, two of our children created an escape room in our basement a few years ago, which was truly challenging and pretty impressive with some twists and turns. But um, this is going to be interesting. So we're going to do try to do this this weekend. If we can get everyone one place, escape room in a box, I'll let you know how it goes. 
Steve, have you ever done an escape room? Um, no, I've had lots of life experiences that have felt like escape rooms, but no, I've never actually done an escape room. My uh, my oldest I, daughter yeah, loves maybe them. Maybe 2020 is an escape maybe. room. Maybe. It feels oh, like gosh. it. <laughs> Less Time fun. is running out. Please just open the door. <laughs> well, Carrie, thank you so much for joining us, especially this week of all weeks. I know, uh, you know, tomorrow at 5 p.m. is kind of your Christmas, New Year's, everything wrapped into one. So uh, we'll be we'll be rooting for you. All right, thanks. 